Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. You're listening to Crosswalk with Pastor Steve Winery. Crosswalk is the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Tri-Cities, and it is our aim to lead you to the cross through the teaching of God's Word. went through and I talked about what's called biblical interpretation or hermeneutics, okay? So in biblical interpretation, words mean things. And so when the writer writes certain things down, unless you have a very good reason to think that he's being poetic or that he's being allegorical or anything like that, you take it as it's written, as somebody in the first century would take the passage, okay? So I'm a first century guy, I'm picking up the book of Revelation, I'm reading it for the very first time, I get to chapter seven, and this is what it says. In verse three, it says that there was an angel, in verse two, that went out and with a loud voice he said, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads, okay? And so that passage says that these people who are going to be sealed are the servants of our God. What do you think that they are? They're probably servants of God, okay? Words mean things. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So 144,000. I kind of think that there's probably 144,000 of them. And it says, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. We know who Israel is. Israel is Jacob out of the book of Genesis. He gets his name changed to Israel. The children of Israel would be the descendants of Jacob. Okay? So I kind of think we're talking about the children of Israel. And then to make sure that you don't get confused about this, he goes through and lists them. And so in verse 5, it says, of the tribe of Judah... 12,000 were sealed. How many, how many of the Jews from the tribe of Judah do you think were sealed? Probably 12,000. Yeah, just like it says, right? Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000, of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000, of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000, of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. So I kind of think that what God's gonna do is take each one of these tribes, pick out 12,000 people, and seal these guys. And I think that the reason that, that God went through and listed them, each tribe that was going to have 12,000 sealed from it, is because so many people over so many years we're gonna come along and say, our church is the 144,000. So the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that they're the 144,000. The Mormons believe that they're the 144,000. The Catholic Church believes that they're the 144,000. The Seventh-day Adventist Church believes that they're the 144,000. And anytime I run into one of these guys and they tell me that they're one of the 144,000, I say, which tribe are you from? 
Later on, when we get to chapter 14, it lets you know that it's not just 144,000 people, it's 144,000 young men who are virgins. So, 144,000 young men who have not had physical relations with a woman, they are not married, and they have not had, you know, had any kind of physical relations with a woman. These are the people who are sealed. And so when I'm talking to somebody that says they're one of the 144,000, I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses that said that they were um, one of the 144, well, they, you know, it depends on the person. But talk about them being one of the 144,000. If they're a woman, I go, well, that's interesting because the Bible says that you should be a guy. And you should be, are you married? I see a ring on your finger. Not with a Jehovah's Witness, but you know, with, with another group. And, and, uh, and that kind of thing. And they don't, fit the, they don't fit the bill. They don't fit the bill on this. And so 144,000 Jewish young men are going to be the ones that are sealed. There's some, there's some interesting things in here. Dan is not mentioned. Tribe of Dan is not mentioned. Tribe of Levi is mentioned. And you have both the tribe of Joseph and Manasseh mentioned. And Ephraim is not. Okay, and so if you know your tribes, you know that when the 12 tribes are mentioned, it depends on what's, what the context is. And so, for example, if, it's the, if the tribe of Levi is mentioned, usually what you have mentioned is the tribe of Joseph. Okay, if the tribe of Levi is not mentioned, you have all the other tribes, including Dan, and you also have Joseph divided up into two tribes, which are Manasseh and Ephraim, okay? But in this passage, Dan is left out altogether. Manasseh is mentioned. Ephraim is mentioned backhandedly because Joseph had two, two sons, two grandsons of Jacob, and those two sons from Joseph, that would be the tribe of Joseph, were Manasseh and Ephraim, and they were considered to be, the, to be half tribes. And they were listed, for example, when you would give out the land. And that's because God was doing different things with Levi. And so why did God not mention Dan? And why does God not mention Ephraim? Guess who the two first, two first tribes to go into idolatry in Canaan were? Guess who? Yeah, Dan first, and then Ephraim second. And so Dan is not mentioned at all in this passage and is left out. Ephraim is mentioned second-handedly as being Joseph in this passage with Manasseh minus out of that. Follow that? Okay. And that doesn't mean that Dan no longer exists because after Jesus comes back, Dan is given their full allotment of land when Jesus comes back and sets up the kingdom. And so you have this situation where Dan isn't mentioned here. Kind of, kind of interesting stuff. Here's another thing. There's some passages in the Old Testament that may point to the fact that the Antichrist has Jewish blood and that that Jewish blood is from the tribe of Dan. And so that's kind of interesting. And I'm not gonna get all, get all into that. If you want more on that, you can get the study on the book of Revelation. But in any case, if you're going, if you're going to have all, the, all, all these tribes mentioned and 12,000 from each one, and these are, these are young Jewish men 
who look like they're the servants of God. They look like they're instrumental in leading a bunch of Gentiles. And that's the next group of people that you see. Gentiles coming into a relationship with Jesus during the tribulation period. And so um, it's been said that these are like 12,000 Jewish Billy Grahams running out, running around, leading people to the Lord during that period of time. Kind of cool. But to have this, you have to have Israel in existence once again during the last days. At the time that this is written, is there a temple? Anybody know? Nope. This is written in 90 AD. Right around 90 AD, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. The people of Israel were basically cast out of the city of Jerusalem. They were not allowed to live there in the city of Jerusalem. There were still people in the land of Israel, but around the city of Jerusalem, nobody was allowed to live there. And in another 30, no, actually another 40 years, 132 AD or so, the, the general population of Israel is going to be thrown out of the land. There was still people living there that were Jewish, but as far as the major portion, there was another revolt called the Bar Kokhba revolt. And at that point, the, the Romans just came down on the nation of Israel and took a bunch of people captive and, and sent them off into slavery and, uh, and that kind of thing. But at this time, there is no temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been destroyed. Destroyed, plowed under with a new city built on top of it that was called Aeola Capitolina by the, by the Romans, okay? So that's a situation that we've got there. Turn over to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. This is part of the parenthesis section, once again, in the trumpet judgment. So you have the first trumpet over in Revelation chapter 8, um, starting in verse 6. It goes down to the sixth trumpet in verses 13 through 21. And then you have this parenthesis that starts in chapter 10, goes through chapter 11, and then you have the seventh trumpet in verse 15. And chapter 11 here is talking about the two witnesses, okay? And so look at verse one. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod and the angel stood saying, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So is there a temple in Jerusalem? I already told you. Just a minute, there is no temple in Jerusalem. And so what's, what's John talking about here? And obviously what's being spoken about is the fact that there has to be a rebuilt temple. And so this is one of the passages that speaks to that fact. There's gotta be a rebuilt temple. When we get to chapter 13, that's when the Antichrist arises and he begins persecuting all the people that follow the Lord. And that starts after the abomination of desolation. But to have the abomination of desolation, you have to have a rebuilt temple. And so he tells John to go and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. He says, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles, for they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. That's three and a half years, okay? And so really interesting that when you're, when you're talking about the temple complex, there's a really good chance that when you, look, when you look at the temple complex right now, the platform that the temple was built on, there's what's called the Dome of the Rock there. And so that was built in the 600s by the occupying Muslim forces. 
on top of a platform that was built by the Jews. And so they came in, they took over the land of Israel, and they built one of their holy places. It's called the Mosque of Omar, and it's called the, the Dome of the Rock. And they built that on Jewish land. In fact, a Jewish construction project that was built to house the Jewish temple. So who's occupying that? It's not the Jews that are occupying that portion of Israel. It's the Muslims that are occupying that portion of Israel. And they've been doing that since the 600s. And so in any case, the Jews at this point, most of them believe that the Dome of the Rock is sitting on top of the holy place where the Jewish temple was. There's a, there's a problem with that. And I probably should have brought a picture, but I didn't. And so, sorry. But in any case, there is a gate that is called the Eastern Gate. It's also called the Golden Gate. And Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, tells us that when a priest would stand inside the temple itself, inside the outer door of the temple, he could look through the gate in the wall that surrounded the temple and look out through that gate and out through the golden gate and he could see the Mount of Olives, which means that they're all lined up. Well, the problem with that is that we know where the golden gate was. Um, the wall that is there right now was built in the 1500s, but the gate that's in that wall, it's a sealed up gate right now, it was built right on top of the golden gate. We found the arches of the Golden Gate underneath it. So it was built right on top of the Golden Gate. And when you look at that complex, from your point of view, you'd be on the Mount of Olives, you'd be looking at the temple. And so the temple is sitting right here. The Golden Gate should be sitting right here. And you should be able to look straight into it to where the temple was, okay? That's the way that Josephus said that this was set up. So the temple would be right here. Golden Gate would be right here. But where the Dome of the Rock is, is right over here. And if you put a wall around the temple itself, which there was a wall around the temple, if you put a wall around the temple, the outer court would have the Dome of the Rock in it. And that may be what's being spoken about here. That when the Jews rebuild their temple, they build it to the north of the Dome of the Rock in line with the Golden Gate just like it was before. They would put it on the same foundations. One of the problems that the Jews have right now is they don't have the ability to dig, it, dig up the Temple Mount and find the foundations because they allowed the Muslims to be in control of that, of that you know, piece of real estate, basically. And the reason that they did it is because they didn't want a war. So 67 war, they gained back the whole city of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. There were calls to rebuild the temple at that point. And what the secular government of Israel decided to do was give that over to Muslim control so they wouldn't have all the Muslims in the world coming down on them because, for example, they destroyed the, the, the Dome of the Rock or something. And so kind of interesting stuff. In any case, the temple has to be rebuilt for this to be fulfilled. And so it's another indication that Israel is in the land. Then it says, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before 
the God of the earth. That's a reference to Zechariah chapter four. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this is talking about the Antichrist, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was our Lord crucified? In Jerusalem. And so you have these two witnesses. They're the witnesses of God in Jerusalem, they are able to do certain things. They're able to, to kill their enemies with fire. They're able to make rain stop for as long as they want it to. They're able to strike the earth with all plagues. They're able to turn water to blood and so on. And after they finish their testimony, they're killed. And then later on in the passage, it talks about the fact that they're raised from the dead and they're taken up into heaven, okay? So who turned waters to blood in the Old Testament? Moses did. Moses did, right? Who struck the land with plagues? And it looked like he did it as often as he chose to from a Gentile perspective. And that was Moses once again. Who called down fire on his enemies? Elijah did that. Who stopped the rain specifically for three and a half years? Elijah did that. And so for sure, one of the, one of the two witnesses is most likely Elijah. Because one of the things that Jesus said is that Elijah was going to come before Jesus returned. And so it looks like one of these guys is Elijah. You can, you can kind of tell I lean towards Moses. Another candidate for one of the two witnesses is Enoch out of the Old Testament. And the reason you have that is because Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven in a, in a chariot of fire. And Enoch never died. He was taken by God. But in any case, whether it's Elijah and Moses or Elijah and Enoch, these are prophets of God that are prophesying in the city of Jerusalem in the last days before the Messiah comes back. And um, they are prophesying, obviously, against the Antichrist. And again, it's an indication that Israel is back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. You have these prophets that are there in the land of Israel prophesying and so on. Turn over to chapter 12. And gosh, I thought I was going to get way further than this, but I'm not. <laughs> in chapter 12, this is a symbolic passage. And the way that you know this is in verse 1. It says, Now a great sign or symbol appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or crowns on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. It's, again, that's three and a half years, okay? 
You have three and a half years all the way through the book of Revelation. The tribulation is divided up into three and a half years before the abomination of desolation, three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. And so this is talking about the three and a half years that takes place after the Antichrist goes into the temple and proclaims himself to be God. Abomination of desolation. Okay, so what's all this mean? And I'm gonna give you a short version and I'm gonna open up a can of worms and if you want to figure this stuff out, you're going to have to go back and you're going, to have to, you're going to have to do some studying. One of the things that's cool about the book of Revelation is, there, is there's over 400 references to the Old Testament, either direct quotes or allusions to passages out of the Old Testament. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the Old Testament. And so the first thing that you see is this woman clothed <coughs> with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. That comes right out of the book of Genesis. There is a dream where Joseph has this dream, and in this dream, there's the sun and the moon and 11 stars, and they all bow down before Joseph. And Jacob, his father, gives the interpretation. And he says, are your mother and I and your brothers indeed going to bow down before you? And so you find out who the sun and the moon are and you find out who the 11 stars are. The 12th star is Joseph himself. And so that's a symbolic representation of the nation of Israel, pictured as a woman, pictured as a woman that's clothed with the 12 stars. It goes on and says, there's another, she was with child, she's pregnant, she cried out in labor and in, in, in uh, pain to give birth. And then there is another sign that appeared in heaven, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns. Well, you get the interpretation of what the dragon is in verse nine. Look at verse nine. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so the dragon is identified as being Satan in the passage. Okay, so the woman, that would be Israel, is about to give birth. And when she's about to give birth, there's the dragon ready to devour her child. This is a manger scene. This is, this is, this is Mary having Jesus. The woman in the passage is not talking about Mary. It's talking about a couple of different things, that the Messiah was going to come from the nation of Israel and that the Messiah was gonna come through a woman, not through a man and a woman, but through just a woman. In the book of Genesis, where you first see the serpent or the dragon, serpent and dragon are interchangeable as you go through the Bible. When you first see the serpent, he tempts Eve. She falls to the temptation. She gets her husband to fall to the temptation also. And then God comes in and starts talking to them and passing out consequences. And there is a consequence that he passes out to the serpent, to, the, to Satan. And he says, the seed of the woman is gonna crush your head and you're gonna bruise his heel. And the seed of the woman is talking about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. Well, women don't have seed. Women are the fertile field. The men have the seed. And so that phrase, the seed of the woman, is a contradiction in terms. It's not a good metaphor, but it is describing exactly what God was gonna do. When Messiah comes, he wasn't going to come of a natural birth. He was going to come of a supernatural birth where a woman specifically was the one who was going to be pregnant without the help of a man, and that child was going to be the Messiah. 
And so that's what happened with Mary, who was of the seed of Abraham, of the seed of Isaac, and of the seed of Jacob, of the seed of Israel. And she specifically came from the line of David, and David came from the tribe of Judah. You've been listening to Crosswalk with Pastor Steve Winery. Crosswalk is the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel Tri-Cities in Kennewick, Washington. If you are interested in purchasing a copy of today's message or wanting to know more about what it means to follow Christ, then please contact our church office by phone at 509-736-2086. You can also look us up online at calvary-tricities.org. There you will find a wide variety of Pastor Steve's teachings to listen to or download for free. If you want to join us for church sometime, we are located at 10611 West Clearwater Avenue in Kenwick, Washington. Our Sunday morning service times are 7.30, 9.15, and 11 a.m. We also have Wednesday and Sunday evening services at 6.30 p.m. We hope you have been blessed today and join us again next time for Crosswalk.